Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters, welcome back to the podcast. I hope you are still doing well during this pandemic, and please wear a mask. All right, in this episode of America Adapts, I'm hosting Dr. Jesse Keenan of Tulane University. Jesse has been a regular contributor to the podcast, and in this episode, we talk about some research he's done on what climate change will mean for the 30-year mortgage. Obviously, the story is much more complex than that, and we'll dig into the risky behavior of financing homes in coastal areas. We'll also talk about Jesse's recent move from Harvard to Tulane University in New Orleans. Very cool move for Jesse. Okay, upcoming episodes. My next episode has been long in the making. It will be the first of a three-part episode arc with the trustees of Massachusetts. We're going to learn about coastal adaptation in Martha's Vineyard in northern Massachusetts. It's an epic series that I'm looking forward to sharing with you. Also, I have Dr. Maxine Burkett at the University of Hawaii, and we'll be talking about climate justice and other related work she's leading. I did mention previously I was going to interview former Senator Russ Feingold. That is still in the works, but it's requiring some scheduling juggling that isn't easy, but we'll get that one nailed down soon. Also, before we get started, Jesse reminded me to give a shout out that the Federal Register has officially opened for comment on the draft prospectus of the 5th National Climate Assessment. Folks, this is important. I know I have a ton of listeners that are capable of giving useful feedback to that process, and I hear adaptation will be highlighted more than ever. I know we think the government isn't doing much on climate change, but the National Climate Assessment is the benchmark for so much planning in this country. Please do your little part and make this process the best it can be. Okay, let's jump into this conversation with Dr. Jesse Keenan of Tulane University. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to a very exciting episode. Returning once again to the pod is Dr. Jesse Keenan, Associate Professor of Real Estate at the School of Architecture at Tulane University. Welcome back, Jesse. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, Jesse, you are a recurring character on this podcast. It's always a pleasure to get you back on. But I want to actually maybe dig into that in a, toward the end of the episode. But just quickly, I think most people associate you with Harvard and what's happened. You're at Tulane now. Yeah, I've, you know, you get to a certain age and like most junior faculty at Harvard and a lot of the Ivy League schools, uh, you get the boot because <laughs> they don't really develop junior faculty, at least in terms of tenure. Uh, and things like that. So you get to a certain age, you get the boot. Everybody knows it going into it. You spend your time there, but you know, you realize that there's a cap on how long you're going to be at these schools. Um, and I think for me, there's been a lot of, I really enjoyed the process of engaging different institutions in terms of what I could potentially contribute and how they could support the kind of work that I do. And I think ultimately, as it relates to Tulane and the School of Architecture at Tulane, it was a really just an ideal fit, I think, for all around in terms of what they're doing at the school, the university, its legacy, not just in a post-Katrina landscape, which of which is very robust in terms of environmental research and ultimately within the realm of adaptation, but it's truly interdisciplinary. And that's the kind of world that I like to live in. And, you know, some schools support that. Other schools don't necessarily support that. But I think Tulane's got a great track record. And I've just been very thrilled to um, find a new home in many ways for uh, not so much for myself and my wife, but but really the work. It's been a very smooth transition and just couldn't be more thrilled. You're technically still in Boston, though. When, when do you think you'll make the move to New Orleans? 
Yeah, in the coming months, we'll make the move. It's very difficult, as you can imagine, to right. move across the country in the middle of a pandemic. But we'll get there. We'll get there. And, and you know, one of the interesting things, thinking about the idea of uh, resilience and organizational resilience, is that, you know, after Hurricane Katrina, Tulane was really had a sort of existential problem, which is that, you know, hurricanes happen. There's all kinds of things that challenge the continuity of the delivery of the, the goods and services of higher education, if you will. And they really invested in that continuity. And so I think when the pandemic came around, this they, they had long stress tested what it meant to transition to remote learning and teaching and research and service. And so I think in many ways they've been much better off than a lot of other universities that have been more, I would say, reactionary and in their responses. So it's actually been quite amazing to see, you know, how that learning has gotten to to the point where they can uh, respond in more affirmative and productive ways. Well, all I can say is a huge loss for Harvard. You are one of the leading thinkers on adaptation, and this, as you know, is going to only become more important. So Tulane's gain. All right. We're here to talk about climate change and 30-year mortgages. And and I want to give a little bit of background here, then I'm going to let you kind of fill in some details. Christopher Favell, who's a writer for the New York Times, recently came out with an article, and it was called Rising Seas Threaten an American Institution, the 30-Year Mortgage. And fascinating article. And some of the recent research that you've done, that was used in it, and you were quoted in that article. But could you kind of quickly summarize what he was saying in that um, New York Times article? Well, they highlighted a couple of pieces of research that I've been leading with uh, two different groups, one with my co-author, Jake Brandt, at the Kennedy School at Harvard, and another with Marco Tedesco and Carolyn Holquist at the Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory at Columbia University. We were looking at two different things, but the main focus, as you cite with the paper, on underwater writing uh, that gives a little bit of a theoretical foundation to this concept of blue lining, was really centered on our empirical findings associated with the activity of mortgage lenders. And our general thesis was this. There's different types of lenders. There's small banks, there's big banks, there's mid-sized banks. You know, you have a local community bank on one level. We would call these a concentrated lender because they're geographically concentrated. And then you have someone like Bank of America or Citibank, broad, diversified lender across the country. And our theory was that with concentrated local lenders, they have better soft information. They have better continuity of experience about knowing where places are at risk or are exposed to various types of environmental exposure, some of which may not necessarily be attributed to climate change. Some may actually have some formal attribution to climate change impacts. But nonetheless, we hypothesize that with these local banks, they have better information and they would be able to better respond to that information. So what we found in our analysis Uh, and this is based on actual observations of mortgage data, is that in sea level rise zones, these smaller banks are passing on the risk, essentially securitizing. They're, they're making mortgage loans and then they're selling those mortgages on, uh, onto the capital markets and the secondary market. A good percentage of those are actually going to the federal, via the federal government via what are called government-sponsored entities. We know this is Fannie Mae, uh, government-sponsored enterprises, rather. We know this is Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. 
But what they're doing is they're passing on that risk. And what we found is that they're they're not only passing on that risk, they're doing it in a greater proportion and a greater level of activity within sea level rise zones than the big diversified lenders. And this is exactly what we anticipated because it demonstrates or it provides, let's say, arguably evidence of a signal that they have better information about these risks and exposures than the, these larger diversified actors. And we see this phenomenon, this behavior increasing over time. And this is very important. And we can talk about why that is. I don't want to go too long, but it supports a more complete picture because what we've seen in recent years is emerging literature that shows that in the housing market, buyers and sellers are beginning to discount, that is, accept less, sell for less, or offer less for housing in high-risk zones, particularly sea level rise zones. Now we're seeing the mortgage markets also having their own behavior. And I think the big picture here is that the convergence of housing and the pricing of housing with the availability and ultimately pricing of mortgages will converge and they will converge in ways that could be potentially problematic, if not catastrophic, uh, for local economies and for households themselves. So we'll, we'll go through that. And I do want to keep referencing back to the article, too, because I think it covered a lot of ground related to your paper. But in your paper, in this issue of underwater writing, I want to do a quote here. And consistent with this theory, this article provides evidence that concentrated local lenders are transferring risk. And you just said this in high risk coastal ge- geographies in the southeast and Atlantic Gulf Coast through increased securitization of mortgages. And you sort of just said that. But as I read that, I'm thinking the big short, and I saw the big short about a dozen times, and it took me that many times just to kind of figure out that lumping together of these risky mortgages, is that a a useful or correct comparison? Yeah, in many ways, what we're talking about is the concentration of risk, right? And in that concentration of risk, we have systematic risk in the sense that when you concentrate mortgages within a portfolio or within a a particular sector that has the potential to amplify or impact other uh, with other economic consequences. So for instance, this type of mortgage behavior may lead to maybe capitalized within housing markets, which means that ultimately purchasing power may be reduced. Housing prices may go down in some areas that may impact property tax rolls, which may impact revenue for local governments, which may impact municipal bonds, municipal finance. And you can keep going on down that chain, both directly and indirectly, of how these things may represent potential systematic failure. So in many ways, that's what they were getting at in the big short, is that these things accumulate their risk. And if you don't look at that cumulative impact for systematic uh, financial risk, you're overlooking some very problematic things. And, And case in point, and this is pretty amazing, if you look in the paper, we found that in any given year, about 50% of all the mortgages that are securitized to the federal government, when I say federal government, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, about 50% of all of those mortgages are within a one-foot sea level rise zone. Now, sea level rise or no sea level rise, mean relative sea level rise, there's a great deal of spatial heterogeneity or a great deal of variation in how sea level rise and where it happens uh, for a lot of different reasons. But one foot is nothing. <laughs> 
And to think that 50% of all the coastal mortgages in these areas, in the southeast Atlantic and the Gulf Coast, are within a one-foot sea level rise zone is an enormous concentration of risk, both in terms of environmental exposure, natural variability, and climate attributive impacts. It's, it's an enormous concentration, and I, I'm not sure people are quite familiar with that. Okay, and so the, the notion of that, these, especially these local banks, they're just like, all right, we want to get this off our, our books. And then this last resort of, and please clarify this, but, you know, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, aren't those two government lenders stopping the free market from doing what it needs to do? Well, you know, these are entities that were essentially private sector entities that had an implicit government guarantee that came to fruition during the Great Recession when the government essentially took them over. There's been a long-standing politics about how you reprivatize uh, Fannie and Freddie, but there's no doubt that they do skew private market activity, and that's actually at the heart of their logic, is market failure, because they were essentially created after the Great, and in successive periods after the Great Depression, rather, because there was a market failure in the sense that we didn't have long-term 30-year amortizing mortgages. We had very short-term mortgages, five years, 10 years, sometimes two years, and they were not fully amortized, which, is, which means that you had a big balloon note. You owed a bunch of money at the end of the term. And so the government stepped in and said, you know what, we're going to stabilize this. You're going to have equal payments of principal and interest. So at the end of 30 years, you've paid this off. You don't have a big balloon payment. And that was that helped correct a market failure and help stabilize our economy. So sometimes engaging markets is a good thing because you're helping correct for market failures. But ultimately, I think as you suggest, an undisciplined or a failure to look at climate risk is is a problem and it likely is skewing some behavior or pricing somewhere along the ways that may arise. So I think you're you're correct uh, in, in suggesting that. All right. And I, I want to know a little bit more about these local banks. And in fact, I think you're analyzing a lot of information from a 30,000 foot level. But did you actually have a chance? Uh, you know, I'm just imagining even talking to a local banker and saying, you know, are you aware of this climate risk? Was there any of those kind of moments or have you heard any anecdotally, these local banks talking about that, or does it kind of play out differently? Well, it's interesting. As a course of the research design or the underlying methodology, we didn't go out and interview bankers, mortgage brokers, and those within the broader mortgage system. But actually, the origins of the research question and why we even took this on was based on my own experience interacting with bankers, risk managers within the banking system, regulators, and the like. And what I found that there was a great deal of variability or just great variation, I should say, in how people assessed not just climate risk, but environmental exposure, which we could extend to uh, hurricanes, floods, and other things that may or may not be attributed to climate change impacts or to varying degrees, let's say. So what I found in my own experience engaging with these people is that there was just there was a lot of variation. Some people didn't believe in it. Some people observed the flooding. You know, some people thought that they could manage this with the products themselves by changing the terms of the product. Some people thought it was all about securitization. It was basically all over the place. There was a sort of chaotic realm. And so what I wanted to get into to see if there was any kind of affirmative behavior that was essentially what we call a a forward-looking behavior. And that's important because one of the things in our controls or the tests that we looked at for this research was to see if these 
geographies that had higher, uh, let's say, uh, activity of behavior associated with uh, securitization, whether they had had an experience with flooding, right? So maybe they were just responding to a particular extreme flood event, and that's why they were engaging it. And what we found is that really had no statistical influence at all, which told us in part, or would support the proposition in part, that this is forward-looking behavior. And so anyway, long story short, it really varies between where you are in the country, belief systems, management strategies. It's really all over the place. But there is something to be said for these local concentrated lenders. And they may not even be engaged in this activity with the belief or the strong belief that climate change is behind this. They may just be, in some measure, thinking, having observations about flooding, inundation, storm surge, whatever that, you know, it may and it may not be related to climate change. But I think when you organize it within a sea level rise zone as we did. And we looked at the influence of different levels of sea level rise zones, right? One, three, six feet, et cetera, et cetera. It's a useful, let's say, proxy for the behavior. Okay. And just uh, as a reminder to my listeners too, is just uh, the work that you're doing, the research and uh, of course the original articles, this, the implications of the threat to this, this whole idea of a 30 year mortgage. And at least that's how the article kind of portrayed it, especially in these coastal areas. And more broadly, what are your thoughts? Is that just more like, okay, well, in the coastal areas and high risk climate areas? And, and I think it also alluded to it's not just sea level rise. I mean, wildfire. I mean, there's other homes that are at risk of climate change impacts. Yeah, that's right. And I think we're going to see more and more research about that, particularly with wildfires coming online. The 30-year mortgage, just returning to that, and it's a great prompt because, you know, what we were looking at was what we call an extensive margin response or a way that you manage things about because you're managing your portfolio. But there's another way to think about this, which is that you're not just managing your portfolio, you're actually managing the terms of the mortgages themselves. And this is where you get to the idea of the conventional 30-year mortgage perhaps being on the decline. And that relates to my other work with Marco Tedesco and Carolyn Holquist at Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory. And in that case, and this is very much emerging research, and we're very much, I would say we're very much at an early stage. We looked at a number of different counties in the east, eastern part of the United States that had deleveraging, or essentially money was coming out of the mortgage markets. And when we we looked at this blindly with what we call FIP codes, and when we looked at the counties, it turns out that almost all Almost all of them are coastal counties. So we said, well, what's going on here? And once we started digging deeper into a couple of case studies in Florida, South Carolina, and North Carolina, what we found in these case studies is that banks were increasingly offering – so there's a couple ways to look at a conventional mortgage. You can look at what we call loan-to-value ratio, right? We put down 20% on a house or 10%, right? Somewhere in that range. That's that's one parameter of a conventional mortgage. Another parameter is fixed interest rate as opposed to variable interest rate. And there's a couple of other terms associated with this, including fully amortized, as I talk about equal payments of principal and interest. But one of the things that we looked at that you could describe as a non-conventional mortgage is the idea that you're essentially borrowing less than 80% of the loan-to-value ratio, right? You're having to put down a down payment greater than 20% of the of the mortgage. And, and so what we looked at is the proliferation in these coastal counties of, of mortgages where you had to make these significantly increased down payments functionally 
to be able to uh, get a mortgage on on average. And that was, I think, very eye opening because essentially what what we were saying is that there's a premium now to live in a sea level rise zone. And in places like, you know, more moderate income places like the Carolinas, um, you know, you're talking about an extra $20,000 to be, you know, down payment that you're going to need to live in an average home. Uh, and that's a, that's a real premium. And, and I think when you looked at the proliferation of these non-conventional mortgages, it, it, it was telling uh, that the market indeed was likely responding to, to this level of exposure and risk. Okay, one of the things, and I, I didn't realize this was even an option, and I thought this was absolutely insane. There's these Interest only mortgages. And if, let me explain, and you can correct me if I have it wrong, is basically when you buy the house, you're, you're on, on an ongoing basis, you're just paying the interest on that house and you're never really paying into the principal. And why would anyone want to do that? And the article sort of implies, well, if you want to walk away from that home pretty quickly or just not being associated with that bigger uh, principal, that's why they do it. And I, I just thought that was insane. But do I, did I explain that properly? No, that's right. And that's based on some of the work of Amin Ouzad, uh, who's an economist up in Montreal at HEC Montreal. And basically what he found is that, you know, relative to the average utilization of these interest only loans, which is about 2%, I believe, that you saw a bit, about five times that rate of utilization in sea level rise zones. And that's telling because that basically says somewhere between the borrower and the lender, there's there's greater recognition that you don't necessarily want to build equity because that, that's what you're doing when you have equal payments of principal and interest. You're paying down principal, therefore you're building equity. But if you take out just an interest-only loan, it may or may not be able to easier to walk away, as the article suggested, because there's there's recourse provisions where you may be liable for it. But it, it's telling in the sense that people are willing to maybe give up some degrees of appreciation. There's other things that are happening out there that maybe that confound our thinking as it relates to climate change that's worth acknowledging. One is that with changing tax act, mortgage interest deductions lose some of their power. You know, tax deduction, local property tax deductions, there are a number of different things that make all of this a little bit complicated and a little less certain. But I think the general proposition or the general takeaway from this is that when you have, you see growth of interest only loans in sea level rise and flood zones, it's, it's telling because it says, you know what? I'll live here, but I'm not necessarily concerned about building homeowner equity. Okay, and I follow up on that is that that seems like pretty sophisticated thinking on behalf of the homeowner that, oh, well, you know, I know this area is going to be flooding. I know sea level rise. I mean, what percentage of homeowners really care about those issues? Yeah, so that's really interesting. This goes back to the work of Asif Bernstein and his colleagues at the University of Colorado and Penn State, who really published a pioneering article that looked at the, this, what I call, what we call discounting behavior, this buyers and sellers essentially selling and, um, and, uh, accepting less for homes. And what they found was that, you know, the, the greater education and wealth that you had, and, and wealth is a bit of a proxy for education, the greater awareness that you had about 
the risks of climate change, which makes sense, right? The better educated you are, perhaps the more time that you have or the better education you have in terms of being able to understand climate science or how it's communicated. Whatever reason that is, there, there was a relationship and a correlation there. And what was very interesting is that when they looked at survey data associated with political affiliation and ideology, ideological affiliation or self-identification, it was essentially neutral in the sense that it didn't matter whether you're Democrat or Republican. It really just mattered how well educated you were in terms of your discounting behavior. And this really underscores the value of community education and why it's super important to advance consumer disclosure with climate risks, physical climate risks, and, and really engage people so they can make more informed decisions about their what would be, in many for many people, the largest financial asset of their household. So it's more surprising, I think, than we may recognize the extent to which people are not only literate, but also seeking information and are concerned about climate change. And that is no doubt shaping their um, investment decisions. Well, I hope so. So in that article, and, and I've had her on the podcast, is Dr. Carolyn Kuski from the University of Pennsylvania there. And what happens, and she's quoted, what happens when the water starts lapping at these properties and they get abandoned? You know, she's just sort of generally speculating, but I thought that was a provocative question. And that notion of then what happens? I mean, what do you think? Well, I thought it was sort of telling that when the New York Times went to the uh, Mortgage Bankers Association for a comment, that, you know, they came back and they said, don't worry, we've got flood insurance. Right. And I think that, you know, obviously that's an incomplete answer because flood insurance doesn't cover inundation or loss of collateral value or, or prepayment risk. There's all these other things. It, it only covers a very limited and narrow range of potential risks. I think what concerns us among many people is this idea of a kind of Minsky moment where you have this kind of rapid devaluation in housing because people see the sort of cumulative risk that may or may not be priced. And I think in many ways that's where we're leading. And, and that's why I wanted to talk about underwater riding and blue lining. And underwater riding is the behavior from the bank's perspective. And blue lining is the implication, often the inequitable implications associated with communities that are facing several different things, one of which is a imprecise science as it's translated to investment decision-making in mortgage markets that may exacerbate their risk whether they know it or not. This is one of the problems with underwater riding is that banks don't have great mapping. They don't have lot block level specificity in flood mapping. That technology is not there yet. And so people are just being grouped into census tracts or sort of course measurements. And that leads to all kinds of things that are, let's say, fair or unfair about whether you actually should be playing a, ultimately what will be a climate premium or a risk premium. But from a blue lining point of view, you know, I think it's worth recognizing that, you know, one legacy of redlining is that, you know, we know the story. I think it's, it's we should know the story of redlining as it relates to mortgages and disinvestment in mortgages and, and communities. But there's a less well-known part of that story, I think, and it should be recognized in this concept context, which is that also related to disinvestment in municipal finance and disinvestment in infrastructure. And now, and, and this is related to environmental justice, right, because now – with a lower quality, well, you have a lower tax base, arguably, 
But now you have lower quality or inferior infrastructure to help manage some of that risk. Many communities and many coastal communities are sort of doubly at risk. They're living with this legacy because now they have to deal with not just the risks of climate change, but the risks of a poor quality infrastructure to even manage climate change and its impacts on the margins. And that, I think, will not only amplify the legacy and the institutional legacy of redlining as a historical but also very living reference point to you know the institutionalized racism and marginalization that this country struggles with but we have to understand that now at the present day in the context of mortgage markets and that's why i think blue lining and underwater writing are important parts of a language to begin to understand these problems Okay, so I encourage my listeners to go and take a look. I'll have links to what the papers that are potentially available in the article, but I guess I sort of want to wrap this part of the conversation up. What What's next for you? Is there any research that you're going to do that's going to be just following up or just sort of expands this story? Well, we're continuing to look at mortgage markets and mortgage market dynamics and the extent to which various inequities may be outcomes, let's say, of various types of behavior, whether intentional or not. There's just a lot of work there. There's a lot of work to be done in municipal finance and the bond side of things, thinking about how we think about public goods and infrastructure and infrastructure finance. In unrelated terms, I'm very excited that in the coming sometime in uh, this summer, the end of summer probably, we will be releasing the first comprehensive climate change publication by a U.S. financial regulator at the CFTC covering the entirety of the U.S. financial system. And I think it's a real benefit benchmark for this country that we have gotten to this stage of memorializing uh, a path forward in adapting to climate physical and transition risk to climate change, but also thinking about how we resource our transition to a net zero uh, economy and the just the equitable and outcomes associated with those processes. So I, it's a huge advancement, and I'm really looking forward to seeing how this you know shapes a public uh, discourse in this country. Oh, wow. Very awesome. Okay. Before I let you go, Jesse, you've talked about why you went to Tulane and what attracted you and what it means for your career-wise, but I guess drilling more into the weeds, what what are your sort of goals? Are you going to be working with graduate students? Do you have classes that you've come up with in your head? What are you going to be doing there? Well, really just doing the, the same body of work that I've done elsewhere in years past. Uh, I'll be teaching a university-wide course in resilience and adaptation science, which is what really gets me out of bed in the morning because we're training next generational leaders and analysts and managers and decision makers about how to appropriately utilize these concepts and the underlying analytical prowess of these concepts um, to advance the decisions we need to make to adapt to climate change. So that's critical. And I'll teach other, you know, more specialized courses in the built environment and, of course, leading teams of uh, students and faculty uh, in, in climate adaptation in the built environment research. So it's uh, it's really just keeping the ship sailing. When things return to normal, whenever that might be, hopefully we can collaborate on another podcast. I get to New Orleans, and you can take me out for beignets. I haven't had a good one in a long time. so. Listen, I'm ready for cocktails at this point, right. uh, <laughs> Just and, and maybe something even stronger than that. Beignets and cocktails. <laughs> All right. Yeah, exactly. Excellent. And Jesse, we're finishing up this podcast conversation, but I am about to have a conversation with you on Simpatico. What are we going to talk about? I think we're going to carry this conversation forward and as it relates to uh, real estate mortgages and the broader trajectory of this country of how we're going to think about uh, everything from managed retreat to the inequities that we live with in, in our built environment. 
Well, I'm looking forward to having that conversation with Unsimpatico, but it'll be a little bit different because we have to see each other, and I, I got to get cleaned up a little bit before we, because normally I don't even dress up when I'm talking to you, so it'll be a little bit different that way. Listen, I've gotten really good at cutting my own hair, uh, so uh, we'll <laughs> see. So you can judge, you can tell me whether I'm uh, how, how good. I think it's going pretty well. I think it's going pretty well. I, I, I may never go to a barber again. I think I'm doing such a good job. <laughs> And which is one of the few silver linings of this whole pandemic. There, there's, it's looking increasingly likely that Georgia's not going to be able to beat the Gators this year. So if I can take any solace from football not being played, if that was what happens, we, we can sort of say that. You know, I don't know. I really hope that they don't have a football season this year. It seems irresponsible um, to do so. But, you know, 2021, fall 2021, Jacksonville, you and I, it's going to be amazing. <laughs> I like that. All right, Jesse, always a pleasure. And until the next time you come on the podcast, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Jesse Keenan for coming back to the podcast. Always a treat to chat with Jesse. He's always in the thick of the latest adaptation research. Definitely take a look at my show notes if you want to dig in further into the research he's done. Okay, again, don't forget to weigh in on the 5th National Climate Assessment draft process. Links are in my show notes. Folks, I've mentioned this many times before, and that's my work with Simpatico Studios. This is a big deal for me where I'm taking my interviews to a streaming channel. It is still early days, but I've already done 80 plus interviews with guests from around the world. It actually is a bit surreal for me. In a two-day span, I might talk with people doing climate work from India, Bangladesh, the United Kingdom, Australia. We are really recruiting some just amazing people doing some amazing work. And it's not just adaptation. We're, we're talking with people doing mitigation, carbon sequestration. So it's a little bit broader than what I'm doing with the podcast. And listen, if you're interested in potentially being interviewed by me yourself and you're in the climate space, it doesn't have to be about adaptation. Look at my show notes and check out the website and see if it might be a good fit. And I think many of you are confused by what I'm doing here. Literally, it's climate TV that you would see on the internet. And it's not just about the interviews, but Simpatico is a platform to do your adaptation work. And you're going to have to kind of look around to figure out what I mean by that. Eventually, it will be behind a paid firewall, but get in early and you all you have to do is submit your name and email and you'll get an invite to come check out the platform. You can join in for a live interview. Literally, as I'm interviewing someone, you could be watching and be in the chat room and ask me questions and I'll see it and answer them in real time. Or you just go look around, check out the archive. Like I said, there's 80 plus interviews in there and we're expanding. We now have a Climate Australia adaptation channel and we have new hosts there coming on. Seriously, there's no commitment from you at all. We're in the early phases of this channel, so it's just a great opportunity to check things out. Okay, so back to the podcast, and yes, they are two different things. If you're interested in highlighting your adaptation work in the podcast, let me know. I have had many partners, WWF, Harvard, MIT, the trustees. Maybe you want to tell your story via podcast. Let's reach out. Let's partner. Let's have a brainstorm. I also do presentations to classes and keynote presentations at conferences when we actually get back to doing conferences. But feel free to contact me at americadapts at gmail.com if you want to learn more. Some final housekeeping. Don't forget to join that Facebook page and the Facebook community group. The group is private, but just email me and I'll let you right in. We chat. Some people share their own work there. It's just kind of a fun, let your hair down sort of area to talk about adaptation. And on that note, I love hearing from you. I say this every week, and I always hear from someone doing some cool work, doing some cool things from all over the world. Just say hi. Give me you know, your recommendation for a guest. I would appreciate that. And it definitely is just a highlight to learn who you guys are. And I'm at americadaps at gmail.com. Send me an email. Check out the website at americadaps.org. 
Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.